You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. Every signer that we are highlighting in this season were remarkable men in their own right. Each one carried great significance to the foundation of the United States in their own way, and independence likely would not have happened without each and every one of them. However, only one man best embodied the definition of an American statesman and can arguably be considered the first founding father, Richard Henry Lee. In many ways, he was the very stereotypical aristocratic Virginian that was all too common among that generation. The Lees of Virginia were a political dynasty in the colony that stretched back to the 1640s. The family was incredibly wealthy with land and dominated Virginia politics for over a century. Nobody in that time likely had better prospects for building a truly meaningful life than what Richard Henry Lee had when he was born. Anything he wanted to do, he was capable of achieving with his family's resources. Yet this seems to be where the stereotype ends. Today, one might assume a man as privileged as Lee would become spoiled, corrupt, or generally out of touch. He certainly had a leg up above most others he interacted with. But this fact seemed to imbue him with a strong sense of duty and integrity. Whereas other people might take their wealth and fame for granted, Richard Henry Lee refused to waste his life. Time and again, he proved himself to be impartial and committed to the principles of liberty, regardless of how it might affect him personally. His is not a rags-to-riches story like some of the others that we may highlight in this season, but it is a story of a man utilizing the blessings he was bestowed in life to their fullest, all to further freedom. 
On January 30th, 1732, Colonel Thomas Lee and his wife, Hannah, welcomed their newborn son, Richard Henry, into the world. Richard was born in Stratford, Virginia, and grew up on his family's tobacco plantation, Stratford Hall. His father, Thomas, was a well-respected officer, statesman, and diplomat in Virginia. Not only was he a colonel, he also served in the House of Burgesses, and even as acting governor of Virginia. Richard Lee, Richard Henry Lee's great-grandfather, moved to Jamestown directly from England and helped establish the colony to become the powerhouse it was then known as. Perhaps no family name was as well respected on either side of the Atlantic than the Lees of Virginia. This allowed Richard Henry Lee to obtain the best education money could buy in the 18th century. He had private tutors, and he was able to be sent to Wakefield Academy in Yorkshire, England. In 1751, he graduated from Wakefield. Throughout his studies, he took a particular liking to civics and history. He saw immense value in having a good understanding of history, classical literature, and how government operated. His research and education didn't end after he graduated. He continued to self-improve and self-educate well after he returned to Virginia. Unfortunately, however, his parents would not be able to see his full potential realized. While away in England, both of his parents died in 1750. After he returned to Virginia, he started practicing law. It wasn't long before his career started to have an upward trajectory. In 1757, he became Justice of the Peace in Westmoreland County. As he started to establish himself, his appreciation for the ideas of liberty only deepened. These ideas, rooted in property rights and self-governance, kicked Richard Henry Lee down a path that would forever change the legacy of his family's name. It would have certainly been easier in his own self-interest to support the well-being of Great Britain. However, he refused to sit idly by as their mother country violated the rights of colonists protected in the British Constitution. Like his father, he joined the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1758. Yet, from the outset, it was clear that he was about to have a much larger impact on the future of the colony. He wasted no time once he arrived at the House of Burgesses, and his first speech was against the importation of slaves. He boldly declared that he was, quote, persuaded, sir, that if it be so considered, it will appear, both from reason and experience, that the importation of slaves into this colony has been and will be attended with effects dangerous both to our political and moral interests. The solution he provided was one that was popular among his peers. Quote, lay so heavy a tax upon the importation of slaves as to effectively put an end to that iniquitous and disgraceful traffic within the colony. Obviously, he was not able to convince enough that his plan should be adopted. The weight of his action, however, is no less important. As a Lee, he could have gone the easy route and made himself an uncontroversial figure in the public eye. Instead, his sense of duty forbade him from wasting time when the rights of man were on the line. Liberty was too precious not to defend with all of his energy. From this point on, he saw no way of going back. 
His conviction would dictate his every move, no matter what was deemed popular or politically pragmatic. It seems as if his experience in the political system only radicalized him further rather than temper his expectations. He didn't want to play ball with the people who were content with the erosion of what he viewed as the sacred rights of man. During his time in the House of Burgesses, he became close friends with individuals like Patrick Henry, perhaps the most outspoken advocate for liberty in the colony. It was easy to see how the two would have fed into each other, sharpening the other's convictions and giving political reinforcement when necessary. The two men were opposite sides of the same coin. Lee was the aristocratic Tidewater Virginian who enjoyed much wealth and privilege, only to put it all on the line for the cause of liberty. Patrick Henry, on the other hand, was a hill country Virginian who had little to no formal education, but when he spoke, it was as if the voice of God worked through him. Lee was well-educated, but Patrick Henry was quick on his feet and relatable to the general populace. Together, they were the heads and tails of the coming cause for independence, the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Of Virginia Patriots. Surrounding the events of the Stamp Act crisis, both men were powerful and vocal opponents to British taxation, but not at the same time. As the Stamp Act passed Parliament in 1765, Patrick Henry made a historic speech denouncing their passage, which led Loyalist Burgesses to accuse him of treason. After his speech, he introduced the Virginia Resolutions of 1765, which wholeheartedly denounced the Stamp Act. Lee, however, made an early career misstep, softly supporting the act, although he didn't know much about it at the time, and applying to be a collector in 1764. It didn't take long for him to realize his mistake, however, and found himself strongly in agreement with his friend Patrick Henry by the time Henry gave his historic speech. Ironically enough, he then sought to force a resignation from the Stamp Act tax collector, who he dubbed an exorable monster for enforcing such a law. He also organized the first non-importation association. This was essentially a boycott of British goods, an economic protest that opposed the violation of the right of free commerce imposed by the British. This tactic was frequently used by colonial protesters leading up to the American Revolution. Pressure from the colonies and the lobbying of Benjamin Franklin led to the repeal of the Stamp Act in March 1766. However, Richard Henry Lee understood that they weren't in the clear just yet. The repeal of the Stamp Act signified the colonies winning a battle, but not the war. The same day Parliament repealed the Act, they also passed the Declaratory Acts, which reasserted the authority of Parliament to tax as they saw fit. Lee's early support for the Stamp Act came back to haunt him, however, as he was censured by the House of Burgesses. Lee immediately renounced his prior position, confessing that, quote, no more than myself, nor perhaps a single person in this country, has at that time reflected the least on the nature and tendency of such an act. After his repentance, Richard Henry Lee sought to atone for his past sins and authored the Westmoreland Resolution. Perhaps being inspired by his friend Patrick Henry, this resolution took a bold position 
against not only England, but potentially the king himself, stating support for, quote, our lawful sovereign, George III. So far as it is consistent with the preservation of our rights and liberty. Lee's suggestion that support for the king could only be maintained if the king himself supported the rights of his subjects led many to accuse him of treason, much like Patrick Henry before him. Nonetheless, there was no confusion as to where Richard Henry Lee stood between England and the colonies. If he possessed any goodwill toward the crown or England as a whole, by this point, it all certainly left him over the next decade. His experience in politics only grew his general distrust of Great Britain specifically, but all governments more generally. A series of accidents and tragedies during this time also likely made him a more weathered man. In December 1768, he lost his first wife, Anne, and he was left to care for their children alone for a time. Matters were made worse after he went goose hunting that winter. He discharged his rifle and it exploded in his left hand, causing him to lose all four of his fingers. From that point on, he would always be seen with a handkerchief or a glove concealing the injury on his left hand. Still, his misfortune toward the end of the 1760s did not reduce his resolve going into the 1770s. He remarried, his second wife also was named Anne, and dedicated all of his energies not being spent toward his family on the American cause. He became one of the most outspoken defenders of the liberties of British Americans, perhaps only second at the time to Patrick Henry himself. Both Lee and Henry were remarkable orators, and were the two Virginians who did the most to lead the colony in the charge toward independence that early on. In 1774, both men were elected to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. It would be here that he would meet his two revolutionary counterparts to the north, Samuel and John Adams. The Adams of Massachusetts and Richard Henry Lee of Virginia was potentially the most important friendship that could have budded in Philadelphia for the cause of independence. Especially with Patrick Henry absent from the Second Continental Congress, the oratory powerhouse between John Adams and Richard Henry Lee became indispensable. Lee's younger brother, Francis Lightfoot Lee, also was a delegate to the Second Continental Congress, but was often overshadowed by his much more vocal older brother. It isn't hard to understand why. Francis was a far more quiet member of Congress than his brother Richard was, but he was no less devoted to the cause. Together, they helped to rally the support for independence, and independence was a conclusion that Richard Henry Lee needed little convincing to arrive at. While most in Congress were still debating how to best reconcile with the British, even after shots had been fired in Lexington and Concord, Lee, along with John and Samuel Adams, had already made up their minds. Independence or nothing. Furthermore, to Richard, this wasn't an issue of an oppressive parliament, but rather the nature of monarchy itself. Such talk frightened many of even the strongest of patriots. But to Richard Henry Lee, it was painfully obvious that this was the only way forward if they were to secure their liberties. 
Richard Henry Lee was present at the Second Virginia Convention in March of 1775 at Richmond's St. John's Church. Here, they discussed whether Virginia, regardless of the other colonies, should continue to play ball and negotiate with Great Britain, or if they should prepare for conflict and declare their intent to separate. Tensions ran high at this convention, and many viewed even the thought of such an action as treasonous. But the radical patriots present, like Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry, knew that Great Britain had already pushed them into this inevitable conclusion by ignoring or rejecting their petitions and grievances. The peaceful routes were expended. Now was the time to prepare for the worst. Then, on March 23, 1775, Patrick Henry stepped up to propose that Virginia raise a militia to secure our inestimable rights and liberties from those further violations which they are threatened. This wasn't a shocking resolution, but it was divisive. Those in attendance needed more of a push to be convinced that action was necessary. A push was exactly what Patrick Henry gave. As he rose again, a minister witnessing the proceedings noted that he had, quote, an unearthly fire burning in his eyes. Richard Henry Lee, a powerful orator in his own right, sat back in astonishment as his friend Patrick Henry gave the most electrifying and important speech of his life, now commonly referred to as the Liberty or Death speech. It was strong enough to tip the scales of the debate. Henry's resolution to raise arms passed, and in the nick of time, the American Revolution began less than a month later. After Patrick Henry's passionate speech on March 23rd, he and Richard Henry Lee fought the battle for independence on two fronts, while Richard was in Congress, lobbying the other colonies to join in independence. He was writing to Patrick Henry, who was at the 5th Virginia Convention. This convention also debated the issue of independence and whether it should inform the Virginia delegation in Congress to support the issue or not. Richard Henry Lee knew that if Virginia led the charge, the other colonies would follow suit. Patrick Henry led the effort in the Virginia Convention to formally separate from Great Britain before America did on May 15, 1776. The convention then instructed the Virginia delegation in Congress to vote for independence. Richard Henry Lee took it from there. In the coming weeks and months, Richard Henry Lee was one of the loudest and most consistent voices for separation. The time to act was now, an act he did. On June 7, 1776, Richard Henry Lee rose in Congress to offer the following resolution. Quote, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiances to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. And there it was, the official motion to declare independence. These were the most important words to come out of Philadelphia in 1776, second only to the Declaration of Independence itself. John Adams was quick to second the motion, but the journey was not over yet. Over the next month, 
the Committee of Five toiled over the writing of a declaration, should the resolution pass. Debate was postponed until July 1st, and while there were still a few obstacles to overcome, the official vote came on July 2nd, ready or not. As the second arrived, the Lee Resolution was once again read that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. Despite the resistance by a few, the resolution passed, and America declared independence on July 2nd, 1776. It was the words of Richard Henry Lee, not Thomas Jefferson, that led to America's independence. While Jefferson wrote a wonderful mission statement, the country had already separated from Great Britain by the time Congress passed the document. As word got out, the news of America's independence spread like wildfire. Notably, in many British papers, it was not George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, or even Thomas Jefferson, that was credited to the independence movement. Quote, Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry have at last accomplished their objective. The colonies have declared themselves independent of the mother country, one paper read. It was Lee and Henry who carried the torch of independence, lighting a path that all others would follow. Interestingly enough, he actually missed the vote for independence, despite being responsible for it. He had to rush back to Williamsburg, Virginia, where the 5th Virginia Convention was still underway. After declaring their own independence in May, the convention immediately worked on hammering out how their own government would look like in a post-British world. Patrick Henry greatly sought Lee's help, writing, quote, I wish to divide you, and have you here and in Congress. There were many uncertainties about the future of Virginia at this point, most notably what their constitution would look like. While the likes of Patrick Henry and George Mason sought independence, there was a faction present that very much enjoyed the arrangement they had with King George. After separation, this faction also saw to it that slavery would be retained in their new independent world. Many other colonies were working toward a system of gradual emancipation until slavery was no more, but they would have none of that. Still, many other good things did result from the convention. George Mason's Declaration of Rights was adopted, which served as a basis for the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. When Richard Henry Lee arrived, he helped secure the Republican system of government that Virginia would enjoy, the first of its kind. Eventually, he did return to Philadelphia with his brother, Francis Lightfoot, so that they could both assign their names to the Declaration of Independence. After his return, Richard Henry Lee helped craft the Articles of Confederation, although today the Articles are remembered as weak and insufficient. Its approval played an important role in the formation of a new nation. Most importantly to Lee, the adoption of the Articles ensured the security of the liberties of the people from an overpowerful central government. He continued to serve in Congress in Philadelphia until 1779, when he returned to Virginia to help secure the liberties of his home country as a member of the House of Delegates. His health was another factor to return to Virginia, and needed to build his strength if he expected to continue in his service. 
He remained in the House of Delegates after the revolution was won. As America shifted to face its post-war issues, Lee returned to Congress in 1784. Once he arrived, he was elected the sixth president of the Confederation Congress. While George Washington is often remembered as the first American president, Richard Henry Lee technically filled that role under the Articles of Confederation well before Washington. During his tenure, his primary mission was to rid themselves of the war debts, but doing so in a way that would not impose heavy taxes on the public. Oppressive taxation was one of the many grievances that the colonies had with Great Britain leading to separation. He wasn't about to let it carry over into the new nation. The best solution that he found to achieve this goal was through land sales in the Northwest Territory. Lee wrote to Samuel Adams that he hopes, quote, We shall shortly finish our plan for disposing of the Western lands to discharge the oppressive public debt created by the war. And I think that if this source of revenue be rightly managed, that these republics may soon be discharged from that state of oppression and distress that an indebted people must invariably feel. Land claims that states had at the time were not really practical. The boundaries just extended westward indefinitely, despite nobody actually living there. And those who were living there had no connection to the broader society in that state. To Lee and others, it made more sense to have the states cede the excess lands to the federal government. This way, they had a more manageable state and the federal government could begin to pay off the debts by selling land, all without raising taxes. It seemed straightforward, that is, until the issue of slavery popped its head. Would slavery be permitted in the territory, or would it not? That was the question that must be answered before states like Virginia were going to give up any land. Thomas Jefferson had drafted an ordinance concerning the Northwest Territory, and according to it, slavery would be banned from the territory, making the federal land free. In 1785, the ordinance mostly passed, with a few notable exceptions, however, the largest being the admission of the ban of slavery in the territory, which was struck out after failing by a single vote. Still, Lee's plan to pay off the debt appeared to be in the works, but a few notable roadblocks were still in the way. Despite it being federal land now, there were still Indians and settlers who had no intention to buy the land from the federal government. More crucially, the government had no real power to enforce its authority. After people realized this, squatters moved to the territory to claim what was essentially free land without government enforcement. Because the Articles of Confederation lacked any real teeth to make Lee's plan work, it ultimately failed by the time his term ended. This exposed yet another problem that people had with the Articles of Confederation. Lee was aware that the Articles had several shortfalls, but there were growing factions calling to dissolve the Articles altogether in favor for a stronger, centralized federal government. This, Lee greatly feared, would become a fatal overcorrection and open the new nation up to the perils of the tyranny of central authority. With that, Richard Henry Lee prepared for his most difficult and controversial fight yet.
Richard Henry Lee knew there were several issues in need of addressing within the Articles of Confederation. Obviously, his land plan to pay off the debts failed in part because of those issues. It was only natural that a group of men creating a system government that, in large part, had never been tried before, at least not to this scale, would make some initial mistakes from time to time. However, no issue with the Articles of Confederation scared Lee remotely to the same degree as to what some others were proposing. These Federalists hardly believed in a true federal system, led by men like Alexander Hamilton. They championed the cause of a powerful central government to have the authority to tax, raise armies, and all but ensure the arrival of an American monarchy. Some of these fears weren't terribly off the mark. Indeed, Alexander Hamilton himself would soon argue that in order to have a proper executive powerful enough to enforce the laws, that person should essentially be an elected monarch, although he danced around that term exactly. To men like Richard Henry Lee and fellow anti-federalists like Patrick Henry and George Mason, this was an unthinkable proposal. Reforming the government to work properly was one thing, they thought. It was something else entirely to open the country to the threat of centralized tyranny right after too many men fought and died to rid themselves of that very thing just a decade earlier. In 1787, Lee was offered a position in the convention in Philadelphia, but he ended up declining. He still held a seat in Congress and didn't feel it appropriate to be serving in both at the same time. However, after he heard all that was coming out of the convention, even though he wasn't there, it was becoming too much to remain silent about. He became vocal against the proposed Constitution and warned against giving, quote, rulers an atom of power that is not most clearly and indispensably necessary for the safety and the well-being of society. His fears were quickly being realized as Hamilton and the Federalists were all but suggesting that they return to the rule of Great Britain. As the Constitution passed the convention in September and was sent off to the states for ratification, Lee was finally able to separate fact from fiction. As he reviewed it, it was clear that Hamilton didn't get nearly the amount that he had wanted, but the growth of the central authority chilled him nonetheless. He wrote to George Mason the next month, stating that the Constitution, in its current state, would be a, quote, coalition of monarchy men, military men, aristocrats, and drones whose noise, impotence, and zeal exceeds all belief. It was clear that the Articles of Confederation were on their deathbed, and the new Constitution would soon be the law of the land. But Lee wasn't going to give up his fight for more power restraint. In its current state that it was being offered, the central government would have the authority to violate the civil liberties of the people. It offered no legal protection for individuals in a court of law, and the states were all but likely going to be reduced to incorporated municipalities rather than free and independent states, as Lee declared in his 1776 resolution separating from Great Britain. It did fix a few issues that the Articles had, and Lee supported this but it came at too great of a cost 
to the liberties of American citizens. In the following months, Lee wrote several letters alongside like-minded allies making their case against the new Constitution. The Federalist Papers, written by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, usually commands the attention of students today. But the Anti-Federalist Papers were just as fierce at that time, hoping to prevent ratification. If it were to pass, Lee argued, it must be with the inclusion of a series of amendments amounting to a Bill of Rights. If such amendments were not to be included, the Constitution should be rejected by the states as a threat to the liberties of all Americans. Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry were both elected to the Virginia Ratification Convention in 1788. It would seem as if this dynamic duo were going to join together once again, like in 1776, rallying their countrymen to the cause of liberty. However, this was a battle that Patrick Henry would have to face alone. Richard Henry Lee had been plagued with poor health throughout his life, especially in his later years, and it often troubled him at the worst possible time. Such was the case before the ratification convention. He ended up not going, and Patrick Henry would be left doing the heavy lifting for the Anti-Federalist cause. However, this did not mean that Lee would not be totally out of the fight. He did what he could from afar, writing to and lobbying other delegates to vote against ratification. He repeatedly emphasized the priority that a Bill of Rights should be placed, and that the inclusion of such amendments were non-negotiable. Unfortunately, the outside pressure from Lee and the oratory from Henry at the convention were not enough to prevent ratification. It passed Virginia 88-79, to 79, an impressively slim margin, but not enough. Richard Henry Lee did not take the news well, complaining that it is, quote, really astonishing that the same people who have just emerged from a long and cruel war in defense of liberty should now agree to fix an elective despotism on themselves and their posterity. However, the cause was not a total loss. Ratification was anything but certain until James Madison split the difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. He personally assured fence-sitters that once the Constitution was ratified, he would work tirelessly for the inclusion of a Bill of Rights. Although they were once adversaries in this national conflict, Lee and Henry were now determined to hold Madison to his word. Under the new Constitution, each state legislature now had to send two senators to represent in Congress. Patrick Henry utilized his power and influence in the legislature to ensure that Richard Henry Lee would be one of those individuals. As one of the first two senators from Virginia, Lee immediately championed the cause of the Bill of Rights. The two years that followed his election in 1789 were consumed with debates over the subject. What rights should be included? Would any be forgotten? How many amendments can they reasonably expect to add? All of these questions troubled Congress in their inaugural years under the new Constitution. Eventually, James Madison managed to come up with a list of 12 amendments after much debate and negotiation. Soon, that number would dwindle into 10. Richard Henry Lee was incredibly displeased with what Madison had come up with. He felt as if these amendments were watered down and didn't give the proper protection needed to secure individual liberties. 
Certainly, something was better than nothing, but he feared that these amendments would ultimately prove insufficient in the face of an ever-expanding government under the new constitution. Chillingly, he prophesied that, quote, it is very clear, I think, that a government very different from a free one will take place after many years have passed. Lee's health never truly improved before he was sent to the Senate. His fight for the inclusion of a Bill of Rights did not make matters for him any better. After the Ten Amendments passed in December 1791, Richard Henry Lee retired from the Senate and from politics. He had done all that he could for the cause, and it was time to focus on his health as he entered into his final years. At the time of his retirement, he was 60 years old. Although he was better off than most others in his day, his twilight years weren't exactly comfortable. Despite his family name and resources, he had never had much money on his hand. His devotion to the cause of liberty, from independence to the fight for the Bill of Rights, cost him many financial opportunities. He didn't take the steps that he took because of the money that it might bring him, but because of his conviction in the ideas of liberty. He died two years later in 1794 at the age of 62. Since Lee died, the size of the government has grown beyond what would be his wildest dreams. But some significant progress has also been made toward freedom. Whether or not his prediction that our government will remain, quote, very different from a free one is up for us to decide. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about Richard Henry Lee. I think that uh, Richard Henry Lee is someone that liberty advocates and and libertarians and anyone who is uh, passionate about this cause should really learn about him and learn about his convictions and how he never wavered uh, even though he may have missteps from time to time his his passion and his conviction never wavered uh, in the face of, of great adversity and that is something that I think is very valuable for any liberty-minded individual to take into consideration. Next week, we are going to be going over uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was uh, quite the character, and I think someone who is going to be very surprising for many of you uh, as far as what kind of contributions he brought, particularly in the realm of uh, criminal justice and and a few others as well. Um, So please tune in for that. If you don't mind, please follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. Please be sure to follow the uh, We Are Libertarians Twitter account at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Please subscribe to the show if you have not already and share it around. Give it a five-star rating and a review. And then please check out our newsletter, the Profiles in Liberty newsletter, which is released every other week. And until next time, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.